Support for the show comes from Atlassian. With a new story about AI coming out seemingly every day, it can be hard to know what it all means for you and your job. Atlassian thinks there's a lot to be excited about in the AI-powered future. Even right now, Atlassian's AI-powered software can help you boost productivity by eliminating menial tasks, generating insights, and helping you find information about projects, policies, and processes. No matter if you're a team of two or two million, or if you're around the corner or on another continent, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for the show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync, so even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account so ambitious companies have the precision control and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I was right. No, I was right, Kara. <laughs> right. I was so right. The bro, dog listen. chalks up another W. No, listen, Hello. broken clock. Listen, broken Hello. clock. Hello. Broken clock. It was going to happen. You know and that. And tomorrow, Tesla's below 100 bucks a share, and then I oh. will be vindicated, <laughs> and everyone will love me. Everyone will love me. Uh, I love it. You know, we talked about this last week when I said he, he should step down, and you said he's going to step down. A broken clock is right. You said that. You said broken clock. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, broken clock, you are right. You are correct. It's, right. it's the right thing. Did you see the stock That's go up? Right. It was crazy. We're going to talk more about it in a little bit, but Merry Christmas. You got an early Christmas gift, as everyone on Twitter is saying. Yeah, it was so funny. Everyone everyone on Twitter is like, oh my God, I'm so excited for you. Like I was getting <laughs> married or something. <laughs> no, it was weird. <laughs> everyone's like, every thought, everyone thought this. I was My sister's like, you must be so happy. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if happy oh, is the right word. Yeah, well, we're going to discuss how you feel about it. We're going to break it down. But how was your Thanksgiving, speaking of your sister? It was wonderful. We went to a place called Staniel Key in the Exumas. I saw um, the pictures. You know, snorkeling. Scott zooms, snorkeling. Scott zooms me from places, or he, like, he FaceTimes me from gorgeous places, and I'm sitting in my sad little studio in freezing cold D.C. without heat, essentially. Yeah, no, you have a rough life in yeah. your seven houses and clamorama on your ninth <laughs> wife and 15th child. Yeah, it's rough for the Swishers. Rough for the Sultan of Swish. How is Swisher Picker Upper? Did oh, you give the name Picker Upper? No, no, it is still Saul. No? And, and my Thanksgiving Saul. was well. Thank Saul. you for asking. It was Eat the white fish. We. That's all. We- my Thanksgiving was wonderful. It's my favorite holiday. No yeah. Jesus, no consumption. You, you know, what did you have? Food. What did you have? Oh, we had wonderful. What do you mean, what do we have? What do you have? Had- Turkey? Some people have different Thanksgivings. Oh, are you kidding? It's like become a game. We or we spend like eleven million dollars on a turkey imported in from some yeah. Iranian town where they only feed the turkeys other turkeys, and you know, <laughs> it's like it becomes. That is so your like, wife. That is so the good. most, literally the most stress I've had in a long time. Yeah, was uh, my partner said to me, "Okay, I am leaving for five minutes. You need to watch the turkey." 
I'm oh, like, no. what do you mean watch it? You have to watch well, it. Well, the temperature can't brown. go above this level or down yeah. below this level. And I'm yeah. like, I know I'm going to screw People this up. People are very funny about their turkeys. It's funny. Oh, my I just, gosh. I just show up. Well, you know what? I got a free turkey breast from my, my son's boss, Pam the Butcher. She gave me turkey boobs, as she called them, a huge mm-hmm. turkey boobs. Uh, and we, put, we, we dunked that mother in, uh, in buttermilk and left it there, mm-hmm. and it was delicious. Who was with you for Thanksgiving? Who? Well, who it was just going to be me and Amanda and the and the two young ones, uh, Clara and Saul. But then the boys showed up with uh, w- uh, we had That's some nice. oysters sent to us by friends as a gift, and so the boys just mm-hmm. showed up, and then we all were together. It was nice. It was a very lovely time. We had a good time. That's they nice have to go. They have that. to split Thanksgivings between my ex and me. But they just decided to come over, and we had a, they ate all the oysters. I think we said oysters, and that was that. And so, Louis and Alex. You don't have like the modern adept. family Thanksgiving where you all get together. No, 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 no. No. But my sons are adept at oyster shucking, so I was pleased they were there. So. That's that the, is that's, nice. Yeah, it was great. No, we don't do that. No, lesbians, that's not a. I know people think that of lesbians, but I do not think that's necessarily a good idea. That's my feeling. Yeah, well, my family had a bit of an argument over Thanksgiving dinner, so I just clicked the end meeting button. Oh, you did. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to Little Zoom it. humor. Right, we have a lot to talk about. Suddenly, we have a lot to talk about. So coming up on the show today, we're talking about, obviously, the big shakeup on Twitter and how Scott feels about it and how it impacts Scott and what Scott thinks is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, a new COVID variant that's got the world on edge. And we'll also mm-hmm. speak to friend of Pivot, John McWhorter, who I really love, and his new mm-hmm. book, Woke Racism. I had him recently on a Twitter space. It's hugely popular. He's got a lot to say. We agree on very little, but I really think he's incredibly uh, fantastic thinker. Mm-hmm. Anyway, first. And you're going to be hearing us talk a lot more about not only parental controls, but safety for young people online more broadly. And I'm going to be talking about these issues with Congress relatively soon. Instagram CEO will testify for Congress next week regarding the app's toxic mental health impacts. We've kind of been waiting for this. Adam Masseri is his first time testifying. He gets He's on the Twitter a lot, making little speeches and stuff. But mm-hmm. he spoke uh, about his upcoming appearance on Instagram. Usually these social media hearings are a wash, but what do you think? He's kind of a live wire. You know what? You should take this. You know him better than I do. Um, I think he's really, uh, he likes the, the spotlight. I think he, mm-hmm. his, twi- his, his, his uh, Instagrams and tw- tweets are funny. They're interesting. Um, he mm-hmm. definitely likes attention. And I think he's got to learn in front of these people, perhaps to take it down a few notches. I think that'll be hard for him. But we'll see. Maybe he'll be well-trained and they'll keep him in check. I don't know what he can say, except we're sorry and we're working on it. If he says things like, well, we may not be the real... If he argues with them, I think he's in trouble. I think he should just sit there and take it, unfortunately, for him. I think it's... You know what I think is? I think it's his job interview or his tryout to be CEO of Facebook. Interesting. Because if he does well... If he's combative, but just combative enough, but likable and makes good points and is forceful, he'll be the CEO of Facebook, which is a new role that'll be created as a heat shield for Zuckerberg. Oh, people think Andrew uh, Andrew Bosworth is the person who's going to be that. I always mix them up. We've interviewed them together. Is that right? He's the CTO? Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's really close to Mark. I don't know. I feel like a tech person is going to be taken, just like in the Twitter situation. You're probably we'll right. Talk that about actually, that feels right. Um, but this guy's a really interesting character, and he's he can be very uh, touchy and uh, and stuff, but he's also very funny mm-hmm. and obviously talented. Uh, people seem to like him that work there. Um, but I, I think Congress is a whole different beast. And I don't, what would you say if you were him? What would you advise him if you were PRing him? We're proud of the progress we've made. We need to do better. Mm, okay. The three things you remember in a crisis yeah, one, okay. top Go. guy or gal takes responsibility. I mm-hmm. take responsibility for this, I take it very seriously. Two, 
um, acknowledge the problem. This is unacceptable. What's going on here is wrong. We think a lot of it has probably been exaggerated. We think a lot of it makes for a good headline and has been exaggerated. But even if it's a fraction of what is being claimed here, which we acknowledge. Should he even say that? I think he shouldn't say that. I think they should stop with that line of PR. I'm sorry. You're saying don't condition it. Just say. Don't condition it. Yeah. Why would you yeah, condition that's, it? That's a good point. Um, I, 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 don't, I think it'll be impossible for them not to, not to go to a lot of this has been blown out of proportion. But yeah. And probably some of it has, to be yeah. fair. So yeah. anyways, and then list all the things they're doing to mm-hmm. try and address it and to say to, you know, and he'll, he'll you watch, he'll bring in some personal stuff, you know, I have a daughter too. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if he does. He'll bring in, he'll turn it into a personal story and talk about all the stuff they're doing. But this is an opportunity for a new face to say, there's a new sheriff in town. I'm Mm -hmm. taking a different approach. I think if he comes off as combative and in your face, I think it's going to get really ugly really fast for the guy. Yeah, I think he Uh, The problem is when they say, what are you doing? They'll ask him a lot of specific questions. Are you going to enforce identity? Well, what about age gating? Yeah. Well, do you, you know, the the questions will get very pointed very fast. I hope, unless it's just about grandstanding, like we want to protect You'll see a lot of that. Yeah, I know. You'll see a lot of that. You'll see a lot of... A lot of the questioning, they'll take up their entire five minutes, and he'll never get a chance to speak. They'll just yeah. make speeches. It's going to be hard for him. He likes to speak. He loves to speak. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Adam, good luck. And come see me if you're in D.C. We'll have coffee. Anyway, Citadel CEO Ken Griffin is the new owner mm-hmm. of an original U.S. constitution. I don't believe these are for private sale after you mm-hmm. outbid a crypto coalition that sought to buy the documents. He paid over $43 million for the rare copy. Griffin isn't known to be a collector of historical artifacts, but he is a skeptic of cryptocurrency. So he's sort of like bashing the crypto boys. Uh, Meanwhile, the group behind the failed bid may have to pay over a million dollars in Ethereum fees uh, to refund their backers. They had a group of them. This is really interesting. I I, I, I thought this was fascinating. I don't know if we have enough billionaires to fend off all the uh, crypto dudes, but what do you think about this? Well, just if you think about valuation, the more people you can get into to bid on something and their returns or expectations are lower, lower, and oftentimes they want to own, they get psychic value out of owning a share in the Green Bay Packers. Mm-hmm. They get psychic value out of owning right. a share of the Glasgow Rangers, of which yep. I'm going to uh, own a bunch, because it's fun. They, they like to say I'm a shareholder in Apple. And typically mm-hmm. speaking, the private to public leap, where you go from a small group of institutional investors to a large number of retail investors, results in greater valuation and a greater tolerance to support a higher valuation, they're willing to pay higher prices. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's because they're less disciplined or they have more, they get more emotional reward, they're not professional, whatever you want to call it. So the idea of taking an organization that has a mission and setting up that kind of smart contract, if you will, and then expanding it to say, okay, there's a small number of universe, really, of people who are going to buy the Constitution. There just aren't a lot of people who will plunk down. Bill Gates and some other guys, yeah. Yeah, 40 million bucks for a piece of American history that may or may not be resellable. Not yet, where do you store it? What do you do with it? Yeah. So, but when you say to an organization- you give it to a museum. They often do that, but go ahead. If you give people the opportunity to buy a piece of the Constitution for 100 bucks under an, the auspices of an organization that has trust, uh, a governance that is built in with technology, with a lack of, of mm-hmm. human arbiters who are going to, you believe, screw you, you're going to see, I think from Dow's, I think this is just the beginning, Kara. Yeah, I you've said this. See- you've said this over, this has been one of your latest things. Well, what you're going to have a doubt, a doubt, like basically say we're going to acquire 
the Dallas Cowboys, or we're going to bid on, yeah. we're going to bid on Allbirds, or we're going. I mean, you're going to yeah. see Dow's do some fucking crazy this shit. Really interesting. In the next twelve months, it's going to be agree. very exciting. And the idea—it's a little like the meme stuff, people, de- right? I mean, it's in, in that genre, 100%. in that genre. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because because valuations on things trade on fundamentals. Sometimes they trade on technicals, and then the mm-hmm. third thing that's been introduced is they can trade on a movement. Mm-hmm. And what happens when an organization says we're going to fund a hundred million dollars to go into an organization to go acquire a certain yep. amount of Chevron, and then mm-hmm. we're going to try and replace the board and go all non fossil yeah. fuels? Yeah, you could have so many, and they could pull it off. Yeah. They could pull it off. So I just think the imagination. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm Stone very excited. Stone soup is what they call it. Stone soup. But they didn't get the – they lost to Ken Griffin. And it'll be interesting about sellers if they want to sell it to these people. That's, I mean, of course, mm-hmm. money is money. So, But it's really exciting. I think this is an interesting new trend, Scott. I think you have put your finger on the pulse of the situation as usual. So also speaking of uh, – very briefly, Chinese regulators have asked Didi, China's mm-hmm. uh, ride-sharing giant, which has seen a lot of changes, including departure of executives, et cetera, um, lots of control, to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. They say it's out of concern for data security. Just uh, – I don't – it doesn't make any sense. It's just more China control of major uh, tech areas, I think. That's pretty much that. Yeah. Somebody at Didi's pissed off the wrong person. I remember yeah. meeting with uh, a friend of mine. He just showed up in my office and we become friendly. And he's this uh, wonderful Russian guy. He's an entrepreneur mm-hmm. now and has started some really interesting companies in the U.S. And I said, why did you leave Russia? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it seems like you were doing really well there. I imagine you could have a really nice life as a wealthy person living in Moscow. And he said, you never know when the call's gonna come. I'm like, what do you mean the call? And he's yeah. like, well, you don't get the call, but he goes, your career can end, even your life can end with a call. And that is the wrong person mm-hmm. calls and decides you're an enemy of the state or an enemy of their company or whatever it is. And he's like, and you just don't know what can happen. Yeah. And this call happened. Someone at DD really pissed off the wrong person. Yeah, it's interesting. And they have, decided to, they have decided to make an example of them, for lack of yep. a better term. Yep, um, yep, yep, yep. But it's, I, would agree. I mean, they're basically, they're basically going to, my sense is going to run them out of business. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because they're, they, 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 there's all these various people there. Uh, uh, I met the founder many years ago in um, China. He had been working at Alibaba before that. Uh, I think it's Cheng Cheng Wei, um, but it, it, he, he didn't speak English, but super aggressive entrepreneur. You could just feel it. He was speaking. We had a translator between us, but he was. You could feel sort of the the just like Jack Ma. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of people there, like at at, at uh, all these companies. And it'll be interesting to see what happens to this class of entrepreneur there in China. But they were very eager to meet with reporters and et cetera, et cetera. And it was an interesting time. And obviously, Gene Liu, um, who comes from a very prominent tech family in China, also uh, it's sort of been squashed down. We'll see what happens there. I mean, it'll, there, there was a class of entrepreneurial in China that I wonder where it goes. It is an interesting thought. One of my friends brought up, and you're kind of nibbling around the edges of that. It's a huge opportunity for America because mm-hmm. our wild, you know, we constantly criticize that the Wild West of tech has gotten too wild. Right. To, there's not enough sheriffs, but right. at the same time, that that respect for innovation, that uh, cutting them a lot of slack, is probably going to attract a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs. I think. I mean, this is this is what happens. This is why entrepreneurship is quashed so much in a lot of countries, and that is, you can build something great and then have it taken away from you, yeah, um, by the government or by a nationalist or a populist movement, and. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, America is known for kind of erring on the side Who's of the Who's coming for you, Scott? Who's coming for you? Who would you say? Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Anytime, anywhere. We'll see. That's why I bought a Great Dane. Don't get near my house. <laughs> Your dog would not. I got so, I got one mean Your dog bitch. Is so she is a bitch. Not. Her name is Leia. She, she is not mean. This dog, you could you would scare just by oh, saying she's, boo. She's brutal no, and aggressive. No, Watch no, out. No, Watch no, out. no. I'm yes. not scared of her in any way. A big dog, though, I have to say. Bigger than me. It could be a she bigger, a big dog. just enormous. But listen, we're going to get on to our big stories. We're going to talk about Twitter. We're going to make that number mm-hmm. two because of John mm-hmm. coming on, because I think that'll be an interesting person to get some thoughts on. But let's very quickly talk about the new coronavirus variant that has roiled markets and disrupted international travel, dubbed, uh, I think it's Omicron. Uh, the variant mm-hmm. was first identified in South Africa, has been found in the UK, Israel, Belgium, Hong Kong. The WHO has labeled it a variant of concern. But as we all know, when you have a virus that has already gone to multiple countries, Inevitably, it will be here. The question is, will we be prepared for it? I I often label you a variant of concern. Um, The Mm. markets dipped on the news. That sounds a little sexy when you say it. It's not not meant to be in any way whatsoever. Mm. The Dow has its worst day year on Friday, though Zoom and Peloton shares increased in price. Markets evened out again on Monday, but people are worried. The U.S., because people are sort of coming back. Just here in D.C., they had Mm -hmm. dropped the mask mandate, uh, which was probably going to go right back up. Um, Rolled out travel restrictions on South uh, Southern mm-hmm. African nations. President Biden has been criticized for delaying the U.S. ban until after the holiday weekend. It's a very dicey political issue. You know, everybody sort of had it with the, you know, with with doing going back and forth and back and forth. And you know, it just adds fuel to the fire of the crazies who are like, now they're going to keep us, you know, under under their thumb with these different uh, variants, et cetera. Moderna and Pfizer are racing to provide an Omicron-specific booster by early next year. I just got the regular booster. Meanwhile, hundreds of Google employees signed a manifesto protesting the company's vaccine mandate. Uh, People are getting, you know, they sort of, oh, someone at the party told me they were over COVID. I was like, okay, just, okay, whatever. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. I just moved on uh, at this this, uh, holiday party. Um, So what do you think? At the start of the pandemic, we talked about contact tracing and testing as a primary means to fight this. Now the hope is for better vaccines. What what are your thoughts about what's happening here? So uh, I'm trying to be better about staying in my lane and and that it's not speaking to the epidemiological ramifications here because I have no fucking idea or training here. But what what struck me about it was how fast the market snapped back, and and it's now become a different input for stocks. And that is, Moderna added thirteen and a half billion dollars in market capitalization, so Zoom yeah. added billions. You know, airline stock. You know, it, 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 it's become we're such a consumer or a dollar driven society that the kind of things we look to. Yeah, we look to infection rates, but everyone kind of looks to the markets and says, "Well, how's this impacting?" Um, how's this impacting business? And what has struck me is this conversation over office space. I think we are getting so good and so used to not going into work and not traveling. This has had an impact on me. I was excited. I just joined the board of Ledger, the mm-hmm. uh, cold storage yep. hardware wallet out of Paris. And I was supposed to go to a board meeting in a week and a half. And it's in in Paris. Mm-hmm. And I saw that Paris has instituted a mass mandate. And I started thinking, well, one one kind of form of citizenship is you just don't need to be a vessel to carry anything anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the fewer places you go that aren't necessary. So I'm yep. 
probably going to say to him, I'm cutting non-necessary or unnecessary business travel wow. out of, okay. and I'm probably not going to go. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, that has big impacts on the economy, right? Because yeah. if, if it's a wow. business person not going – and it's not like I'm going to go back twice. I'm just right. not going to go – I'm just not going. Right. And so this has big impact. The it thing does. that struck me was how quickly the market snapped back. Uh, and also, I tend to think this stuff now – I don't want to call it hyperbola, but – it makes for a great headline, right? A variant yeah. that might get around. So I wonder how much. It'll be really interesting to see if, in fact, it is. I mean, the virus is, I guess, doing what it's supposed to. It's yeah. more infectious. This is what a um, virus does. You know. It varies itself. Um, that's the whole point of a virus, really. That's its job. And this one's doing an excellent job at being a virus. Um, but it's true. It's uh, it's really interesting to think about, like, how, you know, I've been going to several, not just one holiday party for Hanukkah. And it was uh, everything was outdoors. It was really interesting. It was, happened to be a warm night last night. And um, it was so weird to be in a social setting, right? And then I was like, I would mm-hmm. like to go home. Like, I know it sounds weird. <laughs> I, know, I was like, I have to That's wear aging. pants. That's aging. No, but I That's know, aging. but I, I've sort of been like this all the time. And I, someone invited me to an event and I was like, do I have to wear pants? Are there pants involved? And I just feel like I that, that this virus has beaten me. Do I have to wear me. pants? <laughs> do I have to wear pants? Um, uh, it's an interest. It'll be interesting to see. You know, we of course have our event coming up, and code went back and forth and back and forth for a long time, and it worked mm-hmm. very well. And I think if we do it in the right way, I doubt we would cancel it. Right? We would just try to do what we did no, at code. Just try and. Um, but uh, new way right. of living. Yeah, yeah, it's a new way of living, and and we'll do it in a very safe way. But it'll it'll be interesting to see what kind of calculations. And of course, it's in Florida, so. It doesn't really matter what you can do whatever you want. There's I no guess no COVID here. Haven't you heard no Carol? There's no COVID no, here. No, I know that. Um, so yeah. what is what is the Google notes say though that people are don't want vaccine mandates? They also don't want to go back to work, et cetera, et cetera. I know people think that Silicon Valley is liberal. It is not. I I don't know why people keep saying that just because they are nice. I think it's to more gay libertarian people. than liberal. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I think it's liberal when it's convenient. It's libertarian when they don't want to pay taxes or. That's or right. They're not. They're just not. They're not. The, they're centrist would be what I would say. Most of them are but they're not risk-taking politically, most of them, either on e- in either direction, actually. So um, what, do you, what do you imagine is going to happen to these, you know, with these increasing protests? There haven't been that many in this country compared to in Europe and et cetera. But I think people are resisting it, I think. And I think that's the way yeah, it's going to be. Uh, what's the total employee base of Google? I mean, it's yeah, tens small. of thousands. People take cues uh, so- yeah, but but my sense is pe- people – I saw the story and I thought, well, to me, this is more validation that people are fine with a vaccine mandate if they could only get a couple hundred people to sign this thing at Google. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't very it, To me, it's it's more like, well, that means, you know, 22,000 didn't. And I imagine yeah, everyone heard about like it and could have signed it. Yeah. There's this uh, that, quiet, as I said, this quiet group of people and then super loud people. But there's a – I think it all – I think a lot of it I've been thinking, obviously, about higher ed lately – in the last 50, 50 years ago, one in four jobs required a college education. Mm-hmm. Now it's two in three, yeah. whereas the the number of college seats has barely kept pace with population growth, mm-hmm. but that totally misses the demand for college degrees, and that yeah. is the number of jobs that are created that need a college degree has doubled, if not tripled, meaning yeah. that if you have a college degree from a strong institution, much less a degree in engineering or computer science, mm-hmm. you have tremendous leverage. Yeah. And the reality was 50 years ago, if you decided you didn't want a vaccine, it'd be like, okay, get the fuck out of here. I yeah. mean, yeah. The, the amount of leverage that has transitioned to college-educated or elite school-certified employees yeah. yep. is really incredible. And 
So to me, this is all about leverage. Like, oh, this bothers me. I'm going to have a walkout. If you did, I'm like trying to imagine doing a walkout in 1970s ITT. I would have liked yep. to have seen what happened to you. They would have been like, okay, just keep walking. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think this, I think this reflects a society where there are people who get to protest and people who get healthcare yeah. and people who get to take the Google bus yeah. and people who can think big thoughts and talk about how important progressive values are. And then people in the middle of the state are like, well, isn't that nice that you, you have these big liberal thoughts after right. you get rich? Yeah. Whereas a, a lot well, of- these aren't liberal. Know, the, these are more like, no, nobody touches my body kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's- I saw this as validation of the vaccines. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, you know, I people in Silicon Valley confuse me politically. So who knows mm-hmm. why they're doing it? They just sometimes just like to do things. It, you're right. It's a small group of people. It is. It just is. Just like with everything else, they're a very, I would say, uh, a very non-political group of people. And late to the point of laziness. As long as you give them dry cleaning and snacks, they're, they're usually, mm-hmm. they just type away. And so I don't expect my. I don't find them to be leaders from a societal perspective or a political perspective. So I don't. Mm-hmm. Whatever. They can yammer on us. And they love to yammer. They're yammerers of the highest degree. You're right. All right, Scott, let's go on a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Jack Dorsey's big move. And welcome back our friend of Pivot, John McWhorter, author of the book Woke Racism. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. One of our customers who produces pizza at a very large scale all across the world. Believe it or not, they use AI to review the quality of the pizzas that are created. That goes through a workflow that scans the images of the pizzas and makes sure they visually look like what they should. So it's pretty cool. That's Sharif Mansour, Atlassian's head of AI. Sharif thinks there's a lot for companies to be excited about on the AI-generated horizon, spanning everything from making pizza to producing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. There'll be far more jobs created on the other side of this revolution. Instead of a world of less, Sharif envisions an AI-powered world of more. In everyone's day job, they're moving from doing the thing to often being an architect of the thing. It unleashes the potential of every human. And I think we can go from a world where few people have access to a high level of intelligence to a lot more people having access to this information. AI is really giving everyone on the planet more resources to do great things. And I'm very optimistic about that opportunity that lies ahead. Transform teamwork with the power of AI-human collaboration. Start using Atlassian intelligence for your Atlassian products like Jira and Confluence now. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. 
Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. All right, Scott, I'm going to just let you have this one. Jack Dorsey is leaving Twitter, as you predicted, for two and a half years <laughs> or three. I don't know how long we've been together. <laughs> How long have we been together? I think together? our first show you said that. You said he shouldn't yeah. be CEO both. He resigned as CEO and will leave the board, which that to me mm-hmm. was much more interesting, the not staying chairman, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, the CTO uh, since 2000, actually 11, I mean, he's been CTO since 2007. He's been at the company since 2011. Parag uh, Ag. Agrawal, uh, takes over as CEO immediately. Um, Brett Taylor, uh, who is president of Salesforce, who formerly worked at Facebook, I know him pretty well, will become board chairman. An interesting, I, I really like Brett Taylor quite a bit. He's a lovely guy. Twitter stock jumped on the news of Dorsey leaving. Mm-hmm. It came very suddenly. There's He's been delving mm-hmm. into cryptocurrency. Um, there were rumors running mm-hmm. all over the place around the cryptocurrency stuff, like is the government interested in him? Is this and that? And so, but he's really moved on. I think he allegedly is the person who picked the new uh, CEO or whose preference was. So mm-hmm. what do you think? Give me some thoughts. Uh, well, it comes down to two things. And that is the stock is where it was in October of 2014. Wow. And Meanwhile, so, over at Google, et cetera, et cetera. But go ahead. Uh, okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's see where yeah. Google was in 2013. Okay, Amazon. so Google has gone up sevenfold mm-hmm. <laughs> in the last eight years, Tesla, and Twitter has Netflix. gone up zero. Yeah. So Twitter, for any tech company, much less a social media platform, has been a terrible performer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what's wrong? And when you get to the kind of a basic question of like, well, what could do we have the wrong guy or gal? And it's like, well, he works there part time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that used to be kind of like end of conversation. Yeah. And yeah. but this is this is when I double down on this prediction. Jack Dorsey was fired the day, not that Elliot got seats on the board, but mm-hmm. part of the agreement that they came to with Elliot, who, by the way, Twitter knew they were all wet when a big shareholder came in, was that they de-staggered the board. Now, what does that mean? It means that the entire board can be swept out at an annual meeting. And what that means is is that there's this company is now held accountable, that the weapon of mass delay or the weapons of mass obfuscation known as a Mm -hmm. staggered board are gone. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I believe, I don't know if it was six months ago, I don't know if it was three months ago, but they said, boss, it is time for you to go. And the yeah. fact that he's leaving the board, he has 93% of his wealth at Square. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, Kara, mm. is I think there's a non-zero probability that within the next – first off, by the end of 2022, Twitter is no longer a, a independent company. This yes, thing's in play this. now. Yes. It's an yeah. incredible asset. It is. Undervalued is asset, as we both talked about. Um, again, I'll be paying a lot of attention to Brett Taylor. He's connected all over the place. Salesforce, obviously, um, close with Mark Benioff, who at one point tried to buy Twitter. Um, so he's and he's all over. He's connected all over tech. Very well-liked yeah. guy. It was at Facebook. He had, he had tried, they bought a startup of his a million years ago. I think it was interesting they picked tech-forward folks over the media ones. Um, these are all mm-hmm. tech, Brett and uh, Parl are both um, tech forward people versus media, meaning they're not leaning into the media. They also uh, didn't go with their CFO, Ned uh, Siegel, mm-hmm. uh, who was sort of against any making any cryptocurrency investments. They had debated mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, and Vijagadi, who made the big Trump decision, I think most people 
pretend it's Jack, but Vidya was the one that um, was really at the forefront of a lot of their free speech stuff. Uh, it'll be interesting to, I want to watch what happens to them, uh, to those executives. Also, uh, their head of product, Kayvon, um, and a number of other, Beckpour and some others. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to them. Um, well, you know, had the most likely, you know who the what? most likely acquirer Twitter is now? Who? Square. Square, you said. You said Square. But there's others. Salesforce. Um, there's, well, I think it's going to be a crypto company. Yeah. Could be a crypto company. Could be a lot of things. So um, so it could be Square. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Could, fintech. I shouldn't have said fintech. crypto. Fintech. Yeah. PayPal. Yeah. The likes. And it'll be yeah. interesting to see what happens around these uh, free speech decisions. Now, Jack has been, you know, pretty steadfast and forward compared. I know a lot of people criticize him, but he's been, he's made decisions before other people, made difficult decisions around free speech, harassment all kinds of stuff. Um, it'll be interesting what it means for Donald Trump, which I think, you know, with a hmm. new owner. What's fascinating, they've had just a few CEOs of Twitter. Uh, Dick Costello was one, obviously, uh, Ev, the founder, was. Um, it, it'll it'll be interesting to see what this guy does. Uh, you think he's just a place sitter. He could be like Sachin Adeli at Microsoft, too. Could do something with it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, it gets sold. This thing's in play. It, 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 this this kind of influence, um, this user base, uh, a fintech company can come in and turn what is right now, I think, a thirty-seven billion dollar market cap company. And if you're if you're two if you're PayPal and you were two hundred fifty billion dollars, if you Bye. could just get a fraction of those people to start using your platform, mm-hmm. is that worth a twelve or fifteen percent dilution? Yeah, that's why I mean, Mark Benioff wanted to buy it. That's why he hundred. I think a lot of people, Kara, are sharpening their pencils yeah. and looking at Twitter now. I agree. And now it's a single class of uh, it's 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 not a staggered board. This thing is this thing is in play. And I think Jack. People say he doesn't have a big ego. I I can't imagine he wouldn't enjoy turning around and reuniting his sister wives. Mm. I, I think he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna. You know, Let's I all like, get together I, I, and have 40 like more Jack kids. Dorsey. You know I like Jack Dorsey. Yeah, you make fun of him all the time. But I do think he has some ethical— He seems like a nice man. He is, and is interesting, and he's got ethical much more— I mean, I think he made a—he uh, took a long time to do it and argued with mm-hmm. me and others many times about it. But uh, I thought he—especially they, Vija, who I have great respect for there— um, they, they're very thoughtful around that. That said, I've talked to a lot of people recently, and they're like, this is the craziest friggin' place to work ever. It's like a lot of turnover, a lot of drama. It's always been like, always since its beginning, a very emotional company. Um, hmm. And uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of chaos internally at this company, almost since its founding. That said, the impact is so much greater than its value, than its financial value, which is interesting. It's the modern economy's uh, version of the New York Times. And that is, it's Mm -hmm. arguably one of the most influential organizations in the world. Yeah. And it's shitty for shareholders. Yeah. And it shouldn't, it probably, it either needs to, it either needs to step up and start figuring out a membership model, like Twitter Blue, come on, give me a fucking break. No, Twitter Blue. And it needs to get serious. It needs to pivot to a different a different business model, or it needs to be acquired by a fintech company that can better monetize the platform. But this thing, oh my gosh, is this thing uh, in play now. The other thing is, it's an opportunity mm-hmm. for them to really clean up the shit. I mean, yeah, I absolutely love again. Twitter. And I can't tell you, 80% of the really negative comments I get Mm-hmm. Are from a bot or from an anonymous account who is trying to erode the credibility of their target with diversionary tactics. It, mm-hmm. it is, it is a cesspool mm-hmm. of lies and and uh, unfair of slander and defamation. And they could clean it up. 
They, yeah, I some mean, great it, things, though. Let me just say, Twitter is also one of the most amazingly fun places to be. Anyway, just so you know, just so the biggest legacy uh, of Dorsey, uh, besides inventing it, thanks, Jack, is a tweet length from 140 to 280 characters, uh, Twitter spaces, obviously Twitter Blue, Twitter Moments, its short-lived fleets feature, some of the mistakes, obviously, it shut down Periscope and Vine, which left an opening for TikTok. Um, people do not know this, but Twitter was another company around podcasting, and and they failed, and the, and Twitter came out of it, much like Slack came out of a gaming company. So this is this company has had quite a ride, and and a lot of characters around it. So let us give thanks to Jack Dorsey at the same time. Jack, it needs to be worth a lot more. So you need to move along. Uh, I think well, yeah, right I have a slightly different Correct? take, and that is he did a really shitty job, um, and that is he was bad for shareholders, mm-hmm. bad for the Commonwealth, and bad for the planet. So good riddance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would not like to run that company. And actually, we would have a fascinating time running that company. I would make the hard calls. I certainly would. So would you. Anyway, thank you, Scott, for your thoughts. <laughs> Tesla stock, $100. Be, you know, That's, all like a That's all <laughs> I need. That's all I need. Okay. I know. I know. That's true. But but yeah. it's not happening. That's not uh, happening quite well, yet. That guy's got a, that guy's got a lot more zip. In a little spring in a step. You, than you anyway, we're going to uh, let's bring in our friend of Pivot. John McWhorter is a professor of linguistics at Columbia University and a columnist of the New York Times. In his new book, Woke Racism, he argues that anti-racism has become a new religion on the left, and it's hurting the people it claims to serve. Welcome to Pivot, John. Hi, Kara. How are you? How are you doing again? I'm so thrilled Hi, to John. have you here again. There's Scott. Hey. Uh, I'm going to let Scott do many of the questions, because you and I had a really great discussion on Twitter spaces. But I just want to say, I'd love your thoughts on the Twitter situation. We Scott just trashed Jack Dorsey. I don't know if you've heard. Um, but he, is, he was finally right, uh, broken clock right about him leaving after years of predicting it. So I just love your thoughts about what do you think this means, if anything. You're, you use Twitter a lot, and you talk about it a lot. Um, so I'd love that question. And then we're going to let Scott take over. Well, um, to tell you the truth, Twitter always surprises me because it brings out a certain kind of person who is a very ordinary person. We often talk about the Twitter troll as if it's Mm -hmm. some bizarre, you know, physically Mm -hmm. deformed or socially deformed person. But you can tell that a lot of people who behave that way on Twitter are are quite ordinary people. And Mm -hmm. there has always been a kind of person who would have been willing to spread this kind of bile if there only existed the technology to do it. Definitely, there needs to be some sort of reconsidering of Twitter and how it operates in general. Nobody's been prepared for what Twitter has been. And I'm not sure that I've seen him as somebody who was in a position to really think in a larger way about how we need to limit or change this thing that makes everybody a village and is a force for evil as much as it's a force for good. So what would that change be? Well, as far as I'm concerned, we really do have to consider the notion of freedom of communication when it comes to the sorts of things that can happen on that platform. Mm -hmm. Who's allowed to be on it? For how long? How carefully it's monitored? All of those things are ones that challenge our whole sense of how we're going to monitor things like that because nobody expected that everybody would be able to be in each other's faces via some sort of technology until roughly 2009 when Twitter became default. It really does change the entire fabric of existence in many ways. I think, for example, and people tell me that I'm I'm wrong about this, but I think that the reason that the um, race dialogue went crazy Mm -hmm. starting in the early teens was partly because 
because Twitter became default in 2009. I think that had an awful lot to do with the rise of the Tea Party, too. Many people seem to think that race was the main issue there. But I think that also there was a time when Facebook and Twitter became default. That was 2009. That happens to also be exactly when Obama came into office. So I think the book has yet to be written on how significant these things are, and it's taken a lot of people by surprise. But Twitter Twitter shapes history. And we're just now beginning to get a sense of how that works. Professor, I'm curious what you, uh, any of your thoughts regarding the statements that came from uh, out of the chancellor's offices at UC Irvine and UC Santa Cruz regarding the, the verdict and the Rittenhouse trial. Did you see those? No, this I did not see. You mean this morning? Uh, no, so there was a couple of statements uh, from from chancellors of various UC campuses stating, I mean, basically they they were what I would call casting a pretty serious value judgment, saying that the jury got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of conversation around whether chancellors or school leadership should be in the business of creating a platform for these types of discussions, but not actually issuing critiques themselves. And it just felt like it was kind of right in your uh, right in your wheelhouse. Well, no, it's it makes perfect sense if you understand that we are in a period where mm-hmm. a certain kind of radical leftist position, and I don't mean radical leftist itself as any kind of slur, but a certain radical leftist position mm-hmm. believes that battling power differentials should be the center of all intellectual, moral, and artistic endeavor. That is the basic tenet there. And the idea that you battle power differentials in this way is held so fiercely that you can think of it as a kind of religion. And I believe that it really is what an anthropologist would call a religion. And part of it is, part of the reason that it is a religion is that there's an evangelical aspect to it. Hmm. And within this religion, the things that we label as schools actually become churches of a kind. As such, it's very natural that a chancellor would feel that he or she needed to preach or, or propound about something of this kind, when really they're kind of stepping outside of what we would think that person's job would be. And so the Rittenhouse verdict is one of those things that, you know, turned on certain basic legal technicalities mm-hmm. and did not correspond with what most people morally think of Rittenhouse himself. That's something that doesn't sit well with that particular church. And so naturally, you have a, a chancellor making that kind of statement. Now, the chancellor wouldn't think of themselves as serving in a religious function. They don't use those labels. They don't use those words. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what was going on. So talk about your book. Uh, well, Grayson, you and I had talked about the, the title, because when you started writing it, you were you said that because the word has gotten so weighted, just like fake news and so many others that we discussed. So why don't you talk a little bit about the development of of, of the book and the title be, uh, and how you look at the word right now? You're a linguist, obviously. So, yeah, it's um, I really do think that it has gotten to the point that a certain kind of person feels that they have found the ultimate answer. I think they really do believe that. You know, Kant used to believe that. Now they believe that. They think that they're doing good. The idea being that if we battle power differentials and we get rid of that problem, then we can walk on into a happier future. And especially, there's an idea that we need that to happen before Black America can do better than it does. And so what you get is not just an ordinary political program, but you have something where people who don't agree with you are to be chased out of the room. Mm -hmm. They're to be fired. They're to be defenestrated. You're to 
consider it noxious to be around them, even virtually. That sort of thing reminds you of the way heretics were handled not too long ago in certain kinds of religions, and some of them now, as opposed to a political program where there's the notion that white people are permanently stained by white privilege. Whether or not that's true, the parallel with the notion of original sin is rather eerie. And there are all sorts of these things, including sometimes a suspension of disbelief. For example, the idea that you want to defund the police. I understand where that comes from, and a person who belongs to this religion will say that we need to defund the police because of terrible things that the police do. But black people living in underserved neighborhoods tend not to agree with that. They often want more police. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to talk about that. That that hyper-woke kind of person doesn't want to hear that, or they say it's complicated, but don't seem terribly interested in unraveling the complication. This is what I really do believe has become a religious point of view. And the problem is that often, as in that last example, it hurts Black people or insults Black people rather than helping them because it's come down to what I hate to say is about virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. It's signaling that you know that racism exists, and often that's given primacy over actually thinking about things that will help people of a race out in the real world beyond the confines of our discussion, if that makes sense. And you've said that the racial justice movement of the last couple of years has been more involved in virtue signaling versus actually helping black America. What? Let's move, let's go on the offense here. What is it we could do as organizations and people in media and people that like to think of themselves as progressives to actually engage in a conversation and dialogue that results in actually helping black America? I truly believe, and I've been arguing this for 15 years, not just in the, the wake of this book. I truly believe that what would really help Black communities, more than just about anything else, is Mm -hmm. for there to be a sustained battle by all engaged Americans against this thing called the war on drugs. And I know Mm. that for many people that might sound like I'm oversimplifying that we need to have a larger and more abstract Mm -hmm. conversation about racist bias, about systemic racism. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. the war on drugs is part of systemic racism. I'm not denying Mm -hmm. that systemic racism exists. But the war on drugs creates a black market for hard drugs. You can make half of a living selling drugs on that black market. And if you do it, very often you wind up in jail or killed Mm -hmm. or hurt. And the time that you spend on that black market is time that you're not spending getting training in legal work. Now, if I were an underserved black man growing up in a neighborhood like that, I can imagine selling Mm -hmm. drugs instead of going and getting a job in a shoe store. makes perfect sense. It's not that these are bad people. But if that temptation is there, it ends up ruining black lives, which would not be ruined if, quite simply, there were no such thing as that black market. That's all. I'm not arguing against the war on drugs for libertarian or libertine reasons. If there were no Mm -hmm. way to make Mm -hmm. half of a living selling heroin or anything else on the street, the same people who drift into that choice would drift into getting legal work, in -hmm. which case we should celebrate and fund vocational education, two years of vocational education for such guys, Mm -hmm. so that they can learn how to repair air conditioners or become electricians or do any number of things, the sorts of which people like us see and we think, boy, those people sure make a lot of money. We always Mm -hmm. say that about the plumber. How about more black plumbers? The idea being that that's where they start. That would help, I believe, more than just about anything that fashionable anti-racists of the moment are talking about, where you often wonder about feasibility. All right. Let me ask two things then, John, Um, because the war on drugs was started by 
Nixon, the GOP, right, in terms of that, um, who are now the ones sort of pushing back against this idea of cancel culture the most, probably, probably the Trump people, everything like that. But one of the things that tends to happen is, is it really as powerful as it's made out to be or is it sort of a loud group of people? Because let's go through them. Louis C.K. just got nominated for a 2022 Grammy. Mel Gibson is now directing the new Lethal Weapon. Dave Chappelle has said, if this is being canceled, I love it. And his special is still on Netflix. His He literally was not canceled. And then a lot of people self-cancel and then scream about it. Glenn mm-hmm. Greenwald, John Cleese, goes on and on and on. And then they complained about wokeness, but they're doing better than ever. So talk a little bit, because, and as you know, you and I have argued about this, I think some things do need to be made accountable. And the mm-hmm. word cancel culture and the word woke have gotten, um, something's happened to them, the same thing with fake news, where they don't mean a thing. So could you do a better definition of what you think cancel culture means? Because a lot of people look like they're doing great as cancel, having been canceled, allegedly. <laughs> Kara, that's an interesting take on it, and it's just like with the word woke, mm-hmm. we're caught amidst an evolution. Cancel culture, and we think particularly of entertainers. Yeah, most entertainers don't get canceled, partly because the nature of technology is such that how much can you cancel somebody? Mm-hmm. Um, even with, say, Bill Cosby. If you want to see The Cosby Show, you can. But there is there was a canceled career, but that was a particularly particularly Mm -hmm. egregious example. Mm -hmm. But in general, yes, people who complain that they're being canceled often are no more being canceled than, say, Josh Hawley was. But I think cancel culture, it's just like with critical race theory, the definition Mm -hmm. has expanded beyond whether or not a comedian can get work for a year and a half. It's also just the general idea that if you're not on board with a certain extremist and usually anti-racist position, then you don't deserve to just be you know, verbally or writtenly abused. You know, of course, that's going to happen. You don't deserve to be critiqued, but you should be fired or you, you, you should be considered somebody who's not fit for polite company. And so we're talking about, I'm taking random things, Andrew Sullivan being all but fired from New York Magazine because of his views, which few people would consider to be extremist. But people at New York Magazine just couldn't put up with his even virtual presence. Well, so he says, let me just say, so he said, I am, I work there. It's not quite that. It's a little more complex. It's a little more complex than that, but go ahead. Go ahead. You mean the Andrew Sullivan yes, episode? Yes. Indeed. Okay. Or something like um, an example that I use in the book, there was a curator at the San Francisco Museum of Modern mm-hmm. Art who said that within the new regime, he was very interested in looking at art from different people, not just sure. white people, but he wasn't going to stop looking at things from white people completely because it would be reverse discrimination. Mm-hmm. Based on that statement, And from what I've seen, it's that statement alone. He wasn't a character. He wasn't obnoxious. He was Mm -hmm. fired because of the implications of saying that there's even a such thing as reverse discrimination. That mood is also falling under the rubric of what I think people call cancel culture. The idea that you slip up or you offend just a certain kind of person, and that certain kind of person's judgment means that you no longer can play any reindeer games. That's the mood that I think Could you make the difference between cancel culture and accountability just the mm-hmm. word accountability. Second thing is the only people I see actually canceled would be someone like Kathy Griffin, who's never recovered. And and the people who scream cancel culture are the ones who kind of canceled her, right? If you think about it, or Monica Lewinsky, or you know what I mean? Like it's the ones who actually get careers are ruined are, also, are, are throughout society, not just because of, you know, they say the wrong thing about race. 
Well, you know, accountability is important. And a lot of this debate is about what is the difference between accountability mm-hmm. and a culture of shaming and where the line falls. And I think the line has been shifting. With Kathy Griffin, as far as I was aware, she was coming back. I mean, I think my impression was that maybe there have been some health issues, but she did she not stay not. where she was. She was another example of how it's hard to cancel somebody, mm-hmm. wasn't she? Not really, but 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 she definitely went, underwent enormous. It, it was interesting. The people that scream about counselor culture are the ones that canceled her. But that's but that's what I mean yes. is this word keeps shifting around, which means it encompasses everyone, not just a group of people. It's the same thing with the word woke. I mean, how, talk about that was really interesting in Twitter Spaces. You talked about how the word changed while you were writing the book. You went away, and suddenly the word changed. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought woke meant what I'm now going to use progressive for. I'm going to go back to the boring Mm -hmm. word. But woke was somebody who was awake to certain political realities of concern to people on the left. That was what it meant in roughly 2015 when it had jumped the rails into the mainstream. And then around while I was writing the book, I began to realize that woke is now completely a slur. You can't Mm -hmm. say woke without basically yep. eliciting certain eyebrows raising, et cetera. And that's something that happened about over the past two or three years. And some people would say that it was because the right was impatient with anything suggesting progress for people who are down under. I think it was also a matter of a weariness of the excesses of what we might call cancel culture that you and I were just talking about. But the word evolved very quickly from being what politically correct meant for about 10 minutes, straddling 1980 until it became the slur PC. And woke now being the same thing as somebody yelling at somebody for being PC circa Mm -hmm. 1991. I think it happened faster partly because of social media. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. And that means that the title of my book, Woke Racism, I meant it as unintended racism by people who are aware of certain things that are of concern to people on the left. But now the title sounds like a slur, which is not what I was thinking, but the word has changed that quickly. It's really, it's interesting. Isn't it, when we talk about cancel culture, isn't it a question of proportions? And that is, you know, does the punishment match the offense? And when we're talking about, at, at Stern, there's an argument over, for whatever reason, blue water versus, I think it's called deep water economics, and they, they're really emotional about it. And there's certain issues, though, if you take one side uh, at certain topics, you, you, your livelihood could potentially be threatened. Or you could have very important people say, I'm not comfortable around this person, around certain issues. that it's uh, When I think of cancel culture, it's like it th- it, things that used to maybe label you as an asshole or – Yeah, but th- they didn't. Is, it wasn't – it that. wasn't – it didn't morph into we should really investigate whether this person should have a career or not. And it seems like it's been a, a leakage. And my – that was a statement more than a question, but it is – I do have a question, and that is – my sense is, if you think of yourself as a progressive, doesn't a lot of this backfire on us? And that is, we're turning off moderates, and that is, we're we're a lot of people in the middle who kind of swing elections see this behavior and say, "I get your intention, but you're so such in a bubble, it makes me want to go more conservative." Haven't we shot ourselves in the foot with this type of what we good intentions, progressing important ideals, and it's just backfired on us? I think that that is definitely happening. And it's a shame because we're at a point where the Republicans have gone utterly out of their minds. And the alternative party really could be making a better case for itself. But here's 
how we know that something's wrong. There's a kind of person who hears your question and basically thinks it doesn't matter because we're just right. We're, we're mm-hmm. correct. We're battling power differentials. We're showing it to the man. We are questioning. We are decentering whiteness. We're just right. And so the Democratic Party needs to come along with us. We need to teach voters to come along with us. We're not going to change this message because we are correct. That's the problem, as opposed to that sort of person circa five or six years ago as one of many people at the table. I don't hate the sorts of people who I'm now calling the elect, at least not on a good day. They can be extremely irritating. Explain what the elect is so people know. The elect is a kind of woke person, although now it's at the point where woke basically means the elect, a kind of woke person who is obnoxious about it, who considers their view so sacrosanct that they would happily fire or shame somebody in social media for not agreeing with them. It's that strain that has acquired a disproportionate kind of power, especially over the past two years. And I call them the elect because I think they genuinely believe. They believe that they have found the answer. They have fundamentally beneficent intentions. They think that they're ahead of the curve and they want to share this with the rest of the world. But their view is, if you're not with them, you should be kicked to the ground, metaphorically. That's new that that kind of person has the kind of power they have over so many of our institutions. And I know some people say, well, is that as important as what happened on the Capitol steps? Is that as important as Republicans Mm -hmm. trying to deny black people the vote? And I say, I'm not sure which how we compare these holocausts but the idea that what is going on with these people i call the elect is not significant is mm-hmm. to me an almost bizarre question to ask if you, if you find this sort of thing insignificant i'm not sure what kind of take on the world one one has it needs to be discussed i i don't know absolutely i don't know if it's insignificant i think what has happened is in the wake of so many things the, sort of the enragement over trump people have moved that way they're terrified in some way and so that's the reaction which seems typical um it's obviously something has to change. So I'd love to know what you imagine is going to happen. Some of these things tend to burn themselves out, right? On, on, in some manner, and everybody sort of settles back in the center. Or do you not see that happening? You know, I wasn't sure until about three months ago, but I do see that happening. I think a pendulum is shifting. And I think I'm hoping my book can be a part of it. And the idea being just to go back to the middle. It's not to create any kind of extremism of any kind. But I think people are beginning to rub their eyes and see that a certain kind of person wants to decenter whiteness and often doesn't have a very clear idea of what the substitute would be and is recreationally contemptuous of anybody who says, wait a minute, let's take this more slowly. There are other ways of being anti-racist, et cetera. I think people are becoming weary of that, and I'd like to see people – what we're going to need is a, is bravery. There's a mm-hmm. certain kind of person who feels that they're doing the right thing by calling you a white supremacist if you disagree with them, even if you're black. <laughs> I know from experience. That kind of person needs to be told no, and we need to understand that some people are going to call you that, but that life can go on. That'll be easier for some people than others. It depends on your circumstances, but that sort of person needs to be given pushback, or they'll just get everything they want. What will they get? 
Because I, I get this. Whenever I interview a conservative person, I get like, how could you do this to us? And I'm like, what are you t- my job is to ask questions. I don't know what to tell you. And they're not an evil person. And they're, yes, they are. Yes, they're evil. You know, I'm like, right. mm. I said, I, I have a short list of evil. I have to tell but you. Professor, you, you describe yourself. I love that. And by the way, I, I really, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke here. I'm blowing smoke, but it's true. I think we need centrist intellectual role models. And I think you're becoming one of those people. I think you're serving a really important role and you're an important voice. Thank you. Uh, I'm trying. Yeah. So you describe yourself as a 1960s liberal. How do you diverge from the current liberal thinking? Well, how about this? That's a, that's a good question. It's this decentering whiteness thing taken too far. And so it's 1961. I'm wearing cat eyeglasses and a snappy suit, and I'm drinking a martini, and I'm listening to Coltrane, and I'm a civil <laughs> rights leader of that time. And somebody tells me that um, black kids don't do as well on standardized tests. My immediate answer would be, how do we make them better at it? Today, if I say that, that's considered a little bit bizarre, and everybody wonders whether I vote Republican. That is a very strange thing, that I have faith that we can teach black kids to be better at standardized tests. But instead, today's answer is the test is systemically racist. And because black kids aren't as good at it, there must be a bias in the test, although notice that nobody specifies what it is and people have stopped really making that argument much. The test is racist. Let's get rid of the test. Now, never mind that if you get rid of the test for black kids, because of black kids, you're leaving an implication that black kids can't be expected to be tested on abstract cognitive skill. Uh So why be surprised if people start thinking that black kids aren't as smart as other kids? But for me to say these things today, I'm a gadfly, I'm controversial, and I'm a conservative. No, (laughs) I'm a liberal. It's just that the notion of what default black politics are moved far, far to the left in the late 60s. And it's left a rather bizarre circumstance where everybody talks about, for example, the social conservatism in much of the black community. And, you know, it's always been that way. Mm -hmm. And so I am a liberal. I am interested in improving society. I'm interested in the dignity of the individual. I'm not trying to conserve anything. But today, being a liberal ends up looking like you're right of center or, or behind the curve. Now, I can understand how a person might think, oh, no, we've gotten past this enlightenment stuff. We've got this radical perspective on battling power differentials. And until those differentials are suitably battled, then we're, we're not going to talk about John Locke and John Stuart Mill. I get it. That's an interesting position, but it's fragile. It hasn't been defended properly. And in practice, what really happens is that kind of person just scares us by calling us names on Twitter. That doesn't work for me. And I know that I am left of center, really, not right of center. It's interesting you bring up standardized tests because initially it was meant to be anti-racist. Standardized tests were initially introduced as a means of giving people a shot at college, regardless of their income or uh, or, or background. It's interesting mm-hmm. that it's been. It, anyways, it's standardized tests. It's a, a whole other a whole other ball of wax. I'm sorry, Carrie, I interrupted. I interrupted. So that's all right. That's okay. Uh, what I want to know is it, when you you did mention Republicans sort of going off the deep end. How do you fix that situation when you have a group of people that are taking advantage of cancel culture as a political, you know, um, hammer on people, the very people who who don't want to help 
and don't want to do things are using it as a political thing. You've seen it all over the place. How does how do you shift that? Because that, I find them to be the most cynical people of all. Like a Josh, you mentioned Josh Hawley, uh, who continues to scream cancel when he's he never shuts up, um, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you deal with that? With the very cynical people taking advantage of something people in the center are, are more worried. I know a lot of I have issues with my mom. She says things that are problematic, I would say, you know, and not not that I'm trying to like police her language, but you're like, no, 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 sweetie, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time not saying racist, although I'm thinking it in my head, right? You know, it's very hard not to. So how do you deal with the twin forces of a very cynical group of political people on the right, taking advantage of this, and then sort of regular people in the middle that, that, that feel attacked constantly and are open to that argument? You know, I think that, see, see here's where I, I suppose I am conservative in a Burkean way. Mm-hmm. You can only fix people so much, and the Republicans mm-hmm. are caught in something that doesn't look like there's going to be an end to it anytime mm-hmm. soon. They're going to continue with that kind of cold-eyed pragmatism. I mean, any party that would get behind trying to keep as many black people disenfranchised as possible out of an attempt to get more votes for Republicans. I don't believe that it's about the same racism as a segregationist 125 years ago, but still, what a cold, nasty, mm-hmm. you know, clueless, historically blinkered thing to do. Any party that does that is a failed institution. I don't think it can be reformed, but it would certainly help if the other party, effectively, were waiting to basically scoop up, embrace, especially working people who are often on the fence, such as increasing numbers of Latinos, Mm -hmm. in terms of whether they are Republicans or Democrats. Democrats are going to have to work with the concerns of actual people and get rid of the idea. It's kind of a hangover from this radicalism tilt among Black America in the late 60s. Get rid of an idea that the heart of being a Democrat is being a hard leftist with the kinds of concerns that critical race theory pointed us towards. And that's not that people are actually thinking about critical race theory in its actuality, but that sort of thing. That can't be the default. That can't be the center of a party that's going to pick up where the Republicans can't go. So yeah, I would hope that we would have that sort of thing. They're fixing the Republicans? No. They're people who can't be fixed. In the same way as I think that um, the police can only be so much fixed. I believe that saving Black America is about keeping as many Black people as possible away from the police. I'm not sure how much you can do. We watch these same situations happen over and over again. There's a rot there that I'm not sure can change. So pragmatism is something that I'm interested in. Curious to get your thoughts on the University of Austin. You know, I um, I think everybody thinks that I'm part of it, and I'm actually not. But I completely understand the idea behind this University of Austin mm-hmm. because I really am afraid that these people I call the elect – are going to take over academia. I'm not sure if they're taking over education of kids as much as one often thinks. Undergraduates Mm -hmm. tend to be more skeptical than we often think. They're not just vessels taking in the hard leftist view. Most of them assess. But still, academia, in terms of, I think, what's going to be taught at all, I do worry, based on some things that I'm seeing, for example, within my own field, that the elect are going to take over academic inquiry in the humanities and the social sciences and possibly even STEM. And so the idea that there are going to be places that try to be what a university is supposed to be according to a certain ideal makes sense 
to me. I understand the impulse behind that because I really do worry about the university and who's going to be making all the hiring decisions in them within just another generation. It's a it's a, all it's a chilling thing that I see. All of them or just the elite ones? Um, not just the elite ones, but these things are less of an issue. I hate to say down, but the further down the scale yeah. you go. But frankly, the 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 best ones. I'm I'm talking about probably a good two or three hundred universities, where from mm-hmm. what I hear, and I need to start tabulating for public consumption what I hear because people have no reason to believe me. It's it's my inbox, mm-hmm. but I hear something literally daily. What I hear from professors and administrators all over the country is clearly a bizarre transformation in how these institutions are working that few people feel can be resisted. There's an orthodoxy based on fear, and people need their jobs. I'm really afraid of that. And I know that for some people, once again, voting rights issues is more important than that. I'm not sure what the basis of that judgment is. Both of those things are important. I teach in a university, so I think about those things. I like books, but I I don't think that these are trivial matters in any society. Yep, 100%. And yet you two still persist. Somehow you're still going strong. (laughs) (laughs) Buy a thread. All right, this book, you should read it. It's a really important book called Woke Racism. John is a really great thinker, and he's a lovely man, and that's the best part of it. He isn't always screaming at you like many on that side do. Anyway, it's out now. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Kara. Thanks, Professor. As usual, Scott, we make great content. I love John McWhorter, even though we do. I don't agree with him on ever, you, either of you on how serious this is, but nonetheless. Doesn't that reflect that you're the definition of intelligence so you can hold two contrary yes, thoughts that's in your why mind they at love the same us, time? Scott. That's why we're great. I mean, it's the same thing when they talk about the media doing things for clickbait and this. I'm like, they just don't. Mm-hmm. And it's not as liberal as you think. And it's more risk averse. You know what I mean? It's more complex. That's all I'm saying. Life is more complex. All right, Scott, let's go on a quick break. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. You know, there's this idea in business that some people are born to be leaders. You either have it or you don't. But leadership, like any skill, can and should be learned over time. Whether you've climbed to the top of the corporate ladder or are just starting out, you'll find valuable insights at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a leading destination for smart management thinking. And on their website, hbr.org, subscriptions are just $10 a month, which gives you unlimited access to the same level of expertise. Things like case studies, newsletters, podcasts, articles written by some of the world's top minds. I use HBR in my research when I do articles or when I'm thinking about what to talk about on Pivot. I find them really interesting. I find them complete. I find them different. And you can find all kinds of industries covered. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. What a bargain. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, save 10% off your HBR subscription. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT. Scott, wins and fails. Wins and fails. So my fail along the lines of Professor McGuire, uh, I thought the statements out of the Chancellor's Office of the University of California at Irvine and University of California Santa Cruz, which essentially issued an opinion on the yeah. verdict of the Rittenhouse trial, I thought we shot ourselves in the foot. And that is, I think the University of California is an outstanding platform for inviting critical thought and enabling a remarkable and unremarkable kids to... Uh, you know, really damage the muscle known mm-hmm. as the brain such that it grows back stronger by evaluating 
uh, different sides of an issue. And I think this was a tremendous opportunity to look at how did a 17-year-old decide that the right thing to do was to pick up an AR-15 and head to a strange town. I think it was a fantastic opportunity to talk about the legal aspect, the societal aspect. But when, but as leadership at universities, I think I think that we're supposed to create a platform for criticism and debate, mm-hmm. not to issue uh, not to issue decisions around what happened. And it, it, and it, we, again, we shoot ourselves in the foot because this is what's going to happen. The University of California needs a grand bargain with the state to dramatically expand the number of seats to take admissions rates back up. And when we, when the leadership of these universities makes blanket statements like that, that in my view are not very thoughtful. Uh, it only turns off our funders, and state state funding has been flattered down across most of our public universities. And so uh, my, my loss is what I would call um, the temptation to give into an orthodoxy to get uh, uh, virtue points from leadership that should be more thoughtful and, quite frankly, just more discreet and, and, and equip themselves with it. Well, my I would view, say with, that applies to all sides, the, the treatment of Liz Cheney and others, Adam, um, Anthony oh, Gonzalez and Adam Kinsinger. Come on. They, well, you know, it's interesting. He was talking about the University they of Austin. Where they in their party, by the way. They, like, essentially virtually. But the university – yeah, we're talking about campuses right now. The University of Austin, by the way, and I'm going a bit off script here, where they really screwed up. Mm-hmm. The idea of having more colleges, more freshman seats, uh, you, using a campus where it's it, what it's supposed to be, and that is debate from all sides, absolutely the right objective. They rolled it out terribly because what they fell into is they started wittingly or unwittingly promoting their own orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And that's again. It's like you can't insult the orthodoxy from the left and then give people the the, the notion that you're just going to start a university that has orthodoxy from the right. Yeah. You're you're starting from exactly the wrong point, and I don't think that's what they meant to do. I know a lot of people involved in it. Anyways, they botched the rollout, but that's neither here nor there. My win, my win. Mm-hmm. Corporate governance, two years ago, (laughs) the dog buys some shares, sends a letter to the Twitter board, and shocker, shocker, they did not contact me back. They did not call me back. But then who shows up? Some guys from a hedge fund, they call me on a Sunday night, and they say, we're signing your letter with a $2 billion pen tomorrow. What can we do for you? I immediately answer, pay me, bitch, which they did. They de-staggered the board, and they realized that a company— that has huge influence all over the world and has huge opportunity to return massive shareholder value, should not have a part-time CEO, and corporate governance and shareholder shareholder governance works, Kara. Mm. It works. All right. So my win, um, the employees, the employees, the shareholders, the consumers of Twitter, Today is a better day for them because corporate governance, which is based on governments, Mm -hmm. one share, one vote, it works. They got rid of that bullshit weapon of mass entrenchment called the staggered board. And we're going to, oh my gosh, what a thrill. We're going to get a full-time CEO. We're going to get a full-time CEO. My win is corporate governance. Good. Well, oh, good. I'm glad you like that. I think there's more to this story. I think the speed of this change has been, I don't know, smells a little bit. I want to know what's really going on internally. I really do. I want to know how this was the happening. The board said you're out. We're, we're fine putting I know. up with I wanna, bullshit I want a nice reporter to go in We're not putting up with it at 43. I, I, yeah, but why now? Why today? Why here? Why? I, wanna, I want the details, Scott. I want the details from some intrepid mm. reporter. I guess, I guess I could do it, but I'm tired of reporting. So in any case, I would like an intrepid reporter uh, to go in here. Um, I, I'm going to do two things. One is my... Mm-hmm. Well, it's a win fail. I don't know what to make of this, uh, the Australian uh, Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who's a really odd character, I think, proposed uh, is proposing this defamation legislation that would mandate social media companies to reveal the identity. 21 on the first one, right? Yeah, Didn't yeah. Didn't he win the first round? Uh, 
Well, yeah, but this is the identities of anonymous trolls or face fines. It's really this. This is an identity thing, and I, of course, I'm for that. Um, so this, these new legislations from around the world are really legislation being put around. I, I'm. I don't know what to think of it yet. I need to do more looking at it. But I. I think this is the kind of thing you're going to start to see is sort of reigning. Mm-hmm. This is how you reign in these companies. You let them identify them. You. You don't have to violate free speech in order to get them to run their companies better. That's what I would say. Um, so I would think this is interesting. I don't know if it's a win or fail. Here's a. Here's another win. Win and fail kind of thing. I watch. Can, can we pause right there though? Yeah. Can we pause right there? Yeah. That I'm telling you, Kara, is a big story yeah. that is about to become huge. Because guess what? And this is a thesis. Mm-hmm. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of social media managers that work for VCs mm-hmm. or political organizations that identify someone who is bad for the valuation of their portfolio companies or contrary yeah. to their orthodoxy. Yeah. And they have their social media managers create yeah. dozens, if not hundreds, of fake accounts to disparage and slander that person anonymously. Yes, I need to hug you. And you know you, what? It's obviously. bullshit. I agree. It's <laughs> I bullshit. I feel like I need to hug you more than I do. All right. It's total uh, bullshit. My last one is I saw the movie Spencer. It's streaming now. That went, made a quick move Spencer. to stream. It's the one Kristen Stewart is plays Diana. What an odd little movie that is. But I got to say, uh, I didn't know quite what to think of it, and I still don't, And it, but it stayed with me, and Kristen Stewart was surprisingly good. Um, so it's a movie. I, I, I don't know how it moved so quickly to streaming, but it did. Um, so I watched it this weekend, paying hmm. 19 Straight to uh, video? Straight to streaming? No, it's gotten—she's going to win the Oscar for it, supposedly. Um, in any really? case, yeah, it's a really wonderful performance. I would watch it, and I'd love to know your thoughts, Scott, because it was really—it was about powerless of a woman within a within a system and I thought that was really but it didn't like hmm. agonize over it it was great I want you to think what you think it was about lack of power in the midst of power and I thought it was super interesting I liked it a lot I liked it but I also didn't like it so tell me what you think of the thing Scott all right. I will watch it. I still have to watch the the sex lives of college. Oh my god, girls. watch that! that. That's called? a delight. Those girls are yeah. fantastic. Anyway, so uh, we have to go, but we'll take a listener question on Friday's show. Make it about Twitter and compliment Scott. That would be great. Go to nymag.com/pivot and ask away. Okay, Scott, that's the show. What a day for you. What a day for Scott Galloway. What a day. That's right. My little broken, paro, my paro, little broken clock is right, as always. And it, Tesla, there you, go. Tesla Twice a day. you better watch out, Tesla. What's gonna, I doubt that's going to happen. Just became a little <laughs> less insufferable. No. Hello. <laughs> Still Hello. insufferable. Anyway, we'll, and that's how I like you. Um, we'll be back on Friday for more. Uh, read us out, Scott. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Intertot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Barrows and Mia Silverio. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Frankly, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked our show, please recommend it to a friend. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Jack Dorsey, we wish you the best. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Whether you're exploring space, making pizza, or producing a podcast like this one here, chances are your team is marching into the AI-generated horizon. Atlassian Intelligence is unleashing a new era of teamwork. You can use Atlassian's AI-powered products for everything from brainstorming ideas to finding information to summarizing huge documents, all by using normal, everyday language. Atlassian AI-powered software like Jira and Confluence help teams accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. 
Learn how you can transform teamwork with the power of AI at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 